Welcome to Committing Faith in Public, a podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith, working for a more just, kind, and hospitable society. Through the stories our guests tell, we want to encourage you to commit your faith in public, too. I'm Gary Peluso-Verdand, Executive Director of the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, welcome to today to our broadcast of Committing Faith in Public. Uh, it is a very rainy Thursday in tropical <laughs> Tulsa, <laughs> and we all put pontoons on our cars to get here this morning. And I'm here with the Reverend Dr. Lisa Barnett, who is Assistant Professor of American Religious History here at Phillips Theological Seminary. Uh, Lisa, welcome. So glad you're here. Thank you, Gary. Yes, I am too in the drive over <laughs> with the flash flood warnings. Exactly. So you you came to Phillips, what was it, in 2018? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was right at the end of my term as president, I think, exactly, that you were, yes. you were hired in that, in that last cadre I had any hand in. So tell us some about your background. Where are you from? Well, I actually grew up in Oklahoma in a small town in north central Oklahoma called Blackwell, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Uh, graduated from Blackwell High School and then went, uh, spent a couple of years at OSU floundering, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I thought I realized that and I transferred over to University of Central Oklahoma on a debate scholarship. Ah. Uh, Bronco High, right? Yeah, yeah, Bronco High. Uh, And so I debated a couple of years there and uh, got my BA in oral communication education. Uh uh, And then I became a speech and debate and drama teacher. Uh, I first taught actually over in Bristow up the road here from Tulsa. Uh Spent three years there. And then I went up to Ponca City, Oklahoma, back in K County, close to my hometown. And spent some time there before uh, I got snatched away to move down to Texas, uh, where teachers are paid a little bit more. Yes, they are. And so I was a debate coach at Plano Senior High School. And then I spent a couple of years at Carroll High School in Southlake, Texas. And then I finished up at Boswell High School in uh, the Eagle Mountain Saginaw District uh, there outside of Fort Worth. And it was at that time that I was really sort of sort of discerning a call to ministry, Mm -hmm. if you will. And I Mm -hmm. was active in a Christian church in Fort Worth. And my friend, my minister, uh, Lori Fail and her husband, Mm -hmm. Brian Fail, who Mm -hmm. taught at Bright, said, you should consider coming to Bright Divinity School. And so... I took an evening class, both semesters, one year, and I said, yes, this is what I want to do. And so I walked away from teaching high school speech and debate, I guess sort of my midlife crisis, if you will, and then went on to uh, Bright Divinity School to get a Master of Divinity Mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. And I was really, as I was going through the process with the MDiv at the end, um, I was torn with wanting to further continue in the academy mm-hmm. or to go into parish ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, I was ordained by the Southwest region. Okay. Um, I entered search and call, and it was that time in search and call where I said, you know, I'm really not cut out for parish ministry. The academy is really where mm-hmm. I'm, uh, where mm-hmm. my gifts are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that a PhD program would not accept an MDiv. So I went right. back to Bright. Right. Got a master of theology okay. specializing in American religious history because I realized that all my electives during my MDiv were really in history. So I said, there's something here. So once I got the 
THM degree. Mm-hmm. I started applying to religious studies programs as well as history programs because mm-hmm. I knew that history mm-hmm. was a focus. I sort of wanted to also broaden my portfolio a little bit. And I had had an opportunity at Bright there to take classes in the PhD history program okay. and just focus on religious history for my final papers. And so when I applied to the TH, uh, TCU history program, they really offered me the best money. And so I ended up there doing uh, U.S. history, specializing 1877 to the present mm-hmm. with my minor area in up, up to 1877 and Native American history and American religious history and Atlantic world history are my minor. Okay. So history comes up a lot here. Yes, right? yes, yes. Why history? What's, what's, what was your attraction to history? You know, I think growing up, I always... My parents did antiquing and would drag us to, you know, antique malls and stuff like that. And I don't know. And all these, you know, when we would do vacations, all those little sites along the the roadside, you Mm -hmm. know, and Mm -hmm. stopping and the Mm -hmm. back roads to see things. And I think I sort of developed my appreciation for history then, although I didn't acknowledge it at that Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. But there is something fascinating about Studying the past to know where we are today Mm -hmm. and to see how we can change for the future. And I think even more so in graduate studies, my advisor really stressed this question of, and I think it's a great question for almost any field. Mm -hmm. So what? So what? So what did it mean for those people back then? So what does it mean for us today to have that information and how do we interpret that information and what do we do with that information? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so I mm-hmm. think just trying to answer that question, so what, is so fascinating. And the journey, too, has also uncovered how much history I really didn't learn. No, right, didn't know. didn't right. know yeah. because how much has been left out, particularly with people of color, with other marginalized groups in our history, and recovering some of that history and broadening the narrative has really been kind of my mission. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've certainly have learned, especially in the last few years, as I've been able to refocus on kind of the way history plays out in American public life, mm-hmm. religious history plays out, uh, that I think we know more myth than we do history. <laughs> myth is in terms of those deep stories. I mean, yes. they're not untrue stories, uh, though some of them are not factually uh, true. Uh-huh. But the, the myths triumph over history. It just seems pretty profound these days as we're trying to make inroads with all these fine, uh, more local and, and, and histories from voices and perspectives that had been left out. Uh, of our mainstream history books controlled by uh, those people in Texas and California Uh, that control the history book market. (laughs) Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah. So I can, even though most church people don't know a whole lot (laughs) about their own denominations, religious history, let alone religious history per se, why would you say that for the American public writ large, knowing our religious history is important. I mean, with something like 50%, you know, over 50% of the the American public now is not affiliated with any religious organization. Um, you know, so I'm really asking about what's the, what do you see as the public value and impact beyond the church going mm-hmm. public of, of the work you're doing? 
Um, I think a lot of it maybe is to educate ourselves. Uh, you're right about how some of those myths, particularly contributing to Christian nationalism mm-hmm. and that fusion of religion and patriotism together at mm-hmm. different times uh, in the development of the early republic as well, and how some of those myths then, you know, about um, a, a Christian nation founded, you know, founded mm-hmm. as a Christian mm-hmm. nation. Mm-hmm. And we need to kind of clarify some of that and be a little bit more specific. And also, what I don't think a lot of people really realize is the impact of religion and the Civil War on our mm-hmm. current culture mm-hmm. and some of the narratives that we tell ourselves today, uh, particularly around this idea of a Christian nation. Yeah, could you give me an example of, of for instance, what's what what's still popping up today that, that you could say, well, we, we fought about that in the Civil War, but it's not really done? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, f- for me, one of the things that crops up out of the Civil War that really kind of I think we need to take more seriously is the fact that the Constitution of the Confederacy specified Specified. it was to be a Christian nation, whereas our own American, U.S. of America Constitution never came out and specified that. So I think what happened is that a lot of then um, Christian nationalists, evangelicals, however, whatever terms you want to use, started to then pick up that phrase, Christian nation, more so from the Confederate Constitution and continue to promote part of that myth as part of that lost cause ideology right. as well. Right. Along then attached with white supremacy uh, and, and superiority and, and things like that. Yeah. And there were a lot of northern preachers who actually mm-hmm. felt the same way yes. that this was an omission uh, from the founding fathers and it ought to be inserted in. Into the, into the union's constitution also. Yes, yes. And then, of no. course, you know, we look at this idea of um, in God we trust, right? And, right. And, and uh, the Pledge of Allegiance that added, added in the 1950s, really kind of at the height of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. That a lot of people don't stop to think that that was really more of an American identity statement right, of right. I am not a communist, right? Right, right. Rather right. than an embrace of religiosity, spirituality, and any sort of interest outside of organized religion, right? Uh, Right. It was really an American identity statement. And I think that's what a lot of American religious history teaches us, is that more and more it is, I'm trying to prove I am an American. You look at the whole history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Mm -hmm. and some of Mm -hmm. their policy changes at the latter part of the 19th century, particularly away from polygamy Mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. All of that was in response to we're trying to be Americans. Right, right. And I, the way I see that about being American and being Christian mm-hmm. is now that the Soviet Union is no longer, yes. we've taken that identity statement and we've turned it as part of the culture war mm-hmm. as to whether or not you identify with the in God we trust, or yeah. uh, even for a religious person like myself, I much prefer e pluribus unum, yes, yes, <laughs> right, definitely. as a national motto than, than in God we trust, where I don't quite know how a nation any nation actually trusts in God. Exactly. And one of the things you picked up too is, and and this is where some of my future current work and future work is continuing to push this idea that came out of the post-Civil War, this reconstruction era. Well, it Mm -hmm. started really with Jefferson and his Indian policy, Mm -hmm. but it continues and ramps up in the the reconstruction and Mm post-reconstruction era Mm -hmm. of this idea of reconstructing America into an American identity 
And the implications that that had were people of color, particularly Native Americans, as well as African-Americans, freed blacks. Um, But for Native Americans, this twin policy of civilization Mm -hmm. through Christianization Mm -hmm. and that fusing of settler colonialism and Christianity together Mm -hmm. to assimilate Native Americans into an American identity and how religion gets used in that way. Yeah, yeah. Which we see played out in so many terrible ways, including all of the mass graves being discovered by uh, First Nations people in Mm -hmm. Canada and former uh, residential schools where it was where those were made to Christianize and 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 de uh, uh, de Indianize yes. everybody who was either given to uh, go there or snatched from their families to go there. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's not going to be long before you know the interest with uh, American. Federal boarding schools, and I think yes. we're going to continue to to find mass graves um, more so than the graves that are already there that are acknowledged right. from that experience. Right, right. The the certainly the, one of the downsides one learns when one digs into the religious history. Yeah, is that this wasn't this wasn't in spite of our religion. This was in fact because but, of the dominant religion that, uh, or at least the dominant religion was pulled in as an ally with these more imperial ambitions. And not just an ally. There was the short-lived policy with uh, Ulysses Grant presidency, right. his peace policy. Right. And of course, that was the end of the treaty making process. That was really kind of the right. beginning of what would become the allotment process. Right. But one part of that, too, was the assigning of different denominations to right. federal reservations, dividing it up with the implicit purpose of being a presence on the reservation right. and working in hand with the government right. to Christianize. You're right. That was a whole lot more than ally. That <laughs> yeah, was part. That yeah. was partners. That was that was hiring hiring them as your as the government agent. Yes. Yes. Right. And and that the idea that religion is a tool of the government in an assimilation right. process is just an astounding policy and always uh, ought to scare us. It should, but. <laughs> Always that's scarce because then we're being colonized yes. uh, by the by the government. Um, you identify, am I correct, as as both uh, uh, having a European heritage and also having a, a American Indian tribal heritage? It's it's complicated. Okay, so uh, this is how I try to phrase it. I would say that I identify as northern. Cherokee of Arkansas and Missouri because I am okay. an enrolled member of that non-federally recognized Understood. tribe, okay. although recognized by the state of Missouri as a sovereign nation. But I would identify more as indigenous descent rather than indigenous because obviously somewhere years and years ago within my family structure, the connection to the culture of the people got lost. Okay. And so I think, and so for okay. a couple of reasons, I don't technically then identify on any sort of documents as indigenous because it's a non-federally recognized tribe and because I'm nuancing that indigenous descent versus the indigeneity of the culture. 
Right. So in that kind of careful explanation, you have just distanced yourself from Elizabeth Warren. Exactly. <laughs> yes. She made <laughs> during uh, the campaign. There was a lot. Which, was- which I wrote an editorial for the Christian Center, uh, Martin Marty Center uh, uh, blog uh-huh. yep. that then, yeah, uh, the hate mail came coming in, criticize my art editorial, criticizing her. For really? That. Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, oh, yeah. I knew I knew the art. That which was, was a very first, fine that article. That was my first year here at Phillips yeah, yeah. when I did that. It was a very fine article. I hadn't heard about the follow-up. To oh yes. <laughs> well, how does how does that that sense of of identity for you? How does that influence your teaching? Identity for me is it comes in with everything that we do. It, that was really sort of a huge part too of my dissertation mm-hmm. project. This idea of identity because it's so multivalent. Mm-hmm. You can't just mm-hmm. say. Native American, American, you know, French, whatever. You you can't just say that. There are so many layers to identity that makes up who a person is. And so much of that is tied to culture. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, part of the mm-hmm. cultural marker mm-hmm. of identity could also be religion. So mm-hmm. there's a huge part mm-hmm. of me, right? A part of my identity that's grounded within the Christian church disciples of mm-hmm. Christ as an mm-hmm. ordained clergy and historian there. And so I think for my teaching, it brings to me with students in the classroom that there are multiple layers of their identity, too, Mm -hmm. and how then in a theological educational setting to teach them to learn to respect those multivalent identities of members of their congregations in Mm -hmm. order to navigate, Mm -hmm. you know, those sort Mm -hmm. of systems in the future. And if we did that, if we really took that seriously, then we would be able to move away, I would think, yes. from these essentialist understandings of identity yes. and much more to, like you said, the cultural and the relational. Oh, very uh, much. Right. Very I mean, much. Because this is one's activated, you know, one piece of that is, is, is activated in one context versus another context. And, and I just think that's really important work, especially at a time when we're, we seem to be essentializing, are you a red are you a blue? Yes. Uh, uh, are you a, a white this? Are you a person of color this? Um, and and from and from my point of view, the, the more the more ways we complexify <laughs> those identities, <laughs> the the more we can move towards just getting to know people on a one on one basis and and understanding them as uh, each of us as a as a matrix of relationships. And I think that's important, too, for this concept of history, that history tries tries to provide this sort of overarching meta narrative that encompasses all people. And you really can't do that Mm -hmm. because so much of history is based upon your individual story, Gary, as you. Right. Right. right, Absolutely. And your history as a person in a particular category may not fit the meta narrative that has been told. and, And how then do you individually complexify some of that history? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say a good part of my life, I've been learning my, the history is a lot more complex than one than one uh, than, than I thought when I was in my 20s or 30s or 40s. <laughs> um, and I don't really expect that it'll simplify it any anytime soon. Um, in terms of your scholarly project, what are you working on now? And kind of do you have a sense of uh, it, we had Phillips here, the faculty does a trajectory statement. Right, right. Uh, so what are you headed towards? What's, what's your, what is considered to be your project? Okay. So first is finishing my book proposal to get off to an academic press, um, one that has really been following up with me um, from my turning my dissertation into uh, the book. 
Uh, the working title I believe that I have right now is Peyote and the Politics of Identity, Race and Religion in the Formation of the Native American Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once I get that book proposal and hopefully get a contract accepted and turn that dissertation into the book, then mm-hmm. yay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm working also on some conference papers um, along the lines of, again, sort of off of the peyote, but connections with peyoteism and the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day mm-hmm. Saints with the John and Jonathan Koshaway's Oto Church, uh, Firstborn Church of Christ, which was actually incorporated in 1914 before the Native American Church of Oklahoma in 1918. Huh. So, okay. you know, some interesting connections there with other aspects of Protestant Christianity mm-hmm. uh, and how they fuse with peyoteism. And then I'm working on another paper, I think, for uh, a disciples historical gathering next spring on our history as disciples and a little more critique of our triumphalist cry of we are an American religion born on the American frontier Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this idea of not living into Frederick Jackson Turner's significance of the frontier thesis, but looking more at Patty Limerick's challenge to that in uh, Legacy of Conquest Mm -hmm, and acknowledging mm -hmm. the systemic racism within our own denomination that's a part of that frontier experience, if you will. Mm-hmm. So this idea of settler colonialism fusing with religion, uh, what Jennifer Graber's book, uh, The Gods of Indian Country, would identify as settler Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So is there a organizing question that uh, for yourself, as you, as you think about your whole project um, and think about what you want to be doing, mm-hmm. is there an organizing question that this is that comes up again and again and what you're going to pursue? like? For me, as I, I did a dissertation in the history of the ecumenical movement, especially as comparing some European approaches to some American approaches, and I found myself asking about what is the nature of the community we see again and again and again, uh, uh, and and so it's one of the, for me that that's that's a big question. Do you have such a big question that you, that's sort of swirling around in all of the pieces of that you've described thus far? Well, there, there's a couple of things. Always the first question is, why didn't I learn this before, you know, prior to now <laughs> right. re- reading this? But I think secondly, even with, with my teaching uh, history of Christianity uh, 1 and 2 and all of those classes, this underlying issue of power mm. and power dynamics and particularly who has power, who gets power, who wants power. Once you get power, what do you do with that power? And how is power continually used even by Christians over and against other people to oppress them? Mm -hmm. And I think those are the kind of questions that I want to try to answer. Why do we keep doing this to ourselves, right, Mm -hmm. and to other Mm -hmm. people? And how can we break out of that cycle? Yeah. And what would be the so what that goes along with that? with that historical investigation. Yeah. The, so what is, so what did it mean for those people at that time? And how did pockets of resistance come out from native Americans, from freed blacks, from Chinese immigrants, from others when times of oppression are coming down upon them by the federal government, by the church, how are pockets of resistance coming out in order to keep Part of their identity 
intact and part of their in culture intact uh, and to resist that total assimilation into a constructed American identity based on a dominant white culture. Mm -hmm. And just to press a little further on that, because that's, a, I mean, I'm, I'm following what you're saying. So, and why would those be particularly important historical questions to be asking today? Because I think they provide models then for social activism, for social justice, for, you know, outside of this identity of identity politics that's so insular right, right. and, you know, um, kind of isolated on its own. But looking historically at how allies really did kind of come into some of these struggles of resistance um, as well as elevating those individuals within those groups being oppressed and the leadership that came out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, how that can happen and, and be modeled, duplicated, you know, uh, today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, minimally provide clues. Yes. Uh, clues on what we should be looking for as we look for uh, how to resist and, and how to be allies. And also to look at those particularly white Christians and how they were acting in trying to assimilate others and to hold that mirror up and to say, is this me today? Right, right, right. Try to really repent. I mean, you can't repent, yeah. can't repent from what you don't see. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> can't repent, yep. One more question. What is one lesson, not the only lesson, but what is one lesson you would hope any student who takes a class from you would learn in that class? Again, to ask the so what question yeah. every, time, every time, right? Even when you go into a new position at a church and the board chair says, well, we have done this, you know, forever and ever. And to ask the, well, so what? What does it, what did it mean then? What does it mean for you today? And then how to navigate then changes uh, that can come about. I think that's an important. Um, certainly, I also know that uh, the the academic standards for writing papers for me, I hear amongst the students <laughs> that there are secret talks and, you know, oh. everybody shares. But uh, learning to use an active voice in, uh -huh. in your writing and learning to use an active voice, even in your activism. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Claim your agency. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Dr. Lisa Barnett, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and for the good work you're doing within the Phillips curriculum. And I know you've also had a number of opportunities you've, you've, you've taken advantage of uh, that you've accepted to teach and teach and preach in congregations around the area. Um, really appreciate the work you're doing and the way you commit uh, faith in public. Oh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this time with you, Gary. Thank you. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Center for Religion and Public Life at Phillips Theological Seminary. Copyright Phillips Theological Seminary and Gary Peluso Verdan. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect official positions of Phillips Theological Seminary.